now. Michael's asked for a reading from Luke 24. I haven't got it on screen, so you're just going to have to listen to me unless you want to look it up yourself. Uh, Luke 24, uh, verses 13 to 49. And it's on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this, all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. And the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Alright, welcome Michael. I look forward to what you're going to share. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you uh, for your written word to us. We thank you that when we go to it, we come to meet uh, Jesus, the living word. 
We pray as we reflect again today uh, on the scriptures that indeed we might grow in our recognition of who he is and all he's done for us, that he may indeed be Lord of all. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along. Um, I've sort of, I got given a bit of a brief, and that is that you would like to know something about uh, the new church that's been formed, the new Anglican Church in New Zealand. But one of the key tenets of the new Anglican Church is that we are a church that proclaims the scriptures. And so rather than just talking about the church, I thought I'd talk about the scriptures first and then hopefully tie that in uh, to the new church. Um, Andrew and I see Don's here now too and Lorraine have already heard some of this so you'll just have to bear with it. Uh, <clears throat> but we've been working through Luke's Gospel and Luke begins his Gospel by stressing uh, what a careful historian he is, how uh, he has interviewed all the, the right people and sifted the best sources, uh, how his uh, story can be trusted and he gives his purpose for writing which isn't so different from the purpose John gives in writing his gospel. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 4 he says that he writes uh, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, one of the things I find quite interesting about Luke's gospel is that even up until uh, 16 verses before the end of the gospel, there seems to be anything but certainty in the minds of the disciples. In fact, they seem a little dull-headed at times, don't they? Uh, the evidence piles up, the empty tomb, the angels, the women's testimony, uh, Peter sees the empty tomb, there's the conversation on the way to Emmaus, there's the breaking of the bread, and still Jesus has to appear again. And his first words are, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then uh, further down, uh, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them. So it seems that it's a long journey uh, through Luke, and it's only at the very, very end that Luke's mission is accomplished that there seems to be anything like certainty in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the minds of the disciples about who Jesus is and why particularly he had to die on a cross. These uh, <coughs> stories of Luke's, his narratives, are rather like the parables in that you almost spoil them by comment commentating on them. They, they speak so well for themselves. So I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for you, but let's just uh, walk that road to Emmaus for a minute. Uh, Jesus, of course, gave a rather extended sermon. If he walked 10 k's or a little bit further, uh, one can assume that his sermon was about three hours we're not going to do that, but we'll try and uh, at least get a feel for what's going on. And the first thing I would say is, again, put yourself uh, into, the, into the story. It's still the day of the resurrection. It's, it's Sunday morning. Uh, okay, you've been up since dawn, but these two disciples are now heading for Emmaus. Why would they be going there? Well, one can't uh, be sure, but it seems most likely that that was home for them. They'd been up for the festival, uh, for the Passover, and now they decided they were heading home. But what a strange time to head home. Your group is in turmoil, isn't it? You've just had this confusing news about angels, 
uh, by women who you're not too sure about their mental stability of. You've just heard uh, about an empty tomb, that Jesus' body's disappeared. Uh, Everybody's uh, highly emotionally charged, one would imagine, and you decide to leave and go home. Does that not strike you as a little bit strange? And that's what happens in the church, isn't it? So often when we get confused and, uh, and upset, we go off on our own, talking individually. When the thing to do is actually, that's the time when we most need each other. You need the fellowship, don't you, of fellow brothers and sisters. You need to work through this together. So I, I find it quite strange that these two have decided to head home. Maybe they had to feed the cat or something important like that. But there they are, they're on the way. We know the name of one of them, Cleopas, Luke tells us. Maybe he was one of Luke's eyewitnesses that he mentions at the beginning. But we're not told the name of the other uh, companion, uh, which is a little bit tantalising, and especially uh, when it could have been Cleopas's wife. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to uphold the feminist cause. I'm simply saying that because in John chapter 19 there was a woman at the cross who was identified as the wife of Clopas, which is a cognate name with Cleopas. So it could well be the same person. In 19 and verse 25 we read, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Mary, the wife of Clopas, uh, that's interesting enough. If Clopas or Cleopas here is the same person, then quite likely his wife uh, is with him, in which case what we're witnessing here is a sort of a mild domestic. Because remember, they are disputing along the way as to what all this means, these things. And I want to uh, speak later a bit further and say that Mary is saying, you know, Cleopas, you could have um, trusted those women's testimony, you know. They saw the empty tomb and the angel spoke to them and maybe Cleopas says, yes dear, but you know what a woman can be like, especially first thing in the morning, uh, you know, seeing visions and those sorts of things. Why didn't the angel appear to Peter? Wouldn't that have been uh, more convincing? We could have trusted Peter's testimony, and yet when he went to the tomb there were no angels. And maybe the argument continues. Now we better not speculate too much, but I, I raise the issue of Cleopas's wife because it could have significance later in this story, and we'll get to that. But anyway, as they are having this little domestic, uh, the stranger draws up, and the irony is quite sweet, isn't it? That there they are chiding Jesus for being ignorant. Are you the only person who hasn't been following Facebook over these last few days? You're the only one who doesn't know what's been going on? And Jesus, of course, feigns ignorance and says, No, tell me. Why does he do that? Yeah. Sorry? He's playing along. Well, he is, isn't he? And I think he's not only playing along, but he wants to draw them out. He, he's come into the, uh, come onto the scene. The argument's already clearly underway. And he's wanting to hear what they're saying about him. Have you ever played that game where you turn up and, and you hear your name mentioned and people might not who, know who you are and you say, oh, tell me about that awful Michael Hewitt or whatever. <laughs> you know, you want to hear what they've got to say. Well, of course, Jesus... Uh, presumably knew what they were saying, especially back as the risen Lord. But he wants them to reason for themselves, to try and see if they can make sense. 
And uh, it seems that uh, the main issue for them is their disappointment in Jesus. They thought that he was a great prophet. He did the things that great prophets do. More than that, they thought he would be the one to redeem Israel. In other words, to be the Davidic-like king who would kick the Romans out and restore uh, Israel to its rightful place as a sovereign nation. Now, the, the failure of him as a prophet... Uh, they could cope with because many a true prophet had been, uh, had been uh, persecuted and even uh, killed. Tradition says Isaiah was cut in two. Uh, so that wasn't such a problem. But the idea of the Redeemer ending up as a common criminal uh, on a cross, uh, the worst, uh, most offensive way of being killed, a way of being killed that for Rome meant that you would be completely forgotten, erased from history, the idea of a redeemer who would end up, uh, who would have that fate completely blew any idea of him being the redeemer out of the water. And that is very troubling. Now remember that in Luke's gospel, the theme of redemption comes in very strongly at the beginning. In Zechariah's prophecy, in Anna's uh, prophecy in the temple, uh, there is, this is the story of the one who will redeem his people. So there's this uh, disconnect, this incongruity between what was expected and what happened in the eyes of these disciples. And it's a major problem for them. It's making them question everything. And Jesus isn't uh, very tactful. He says, oh foolish ones, why are you so slow of heart and understanding? And then he gives them this uh, three-hour sermon going through the scriptures and showing them that suffering does not abnegate the hope that they have. Quite the contrary. It's through suffering that redemption was always going to come. Now this wasn't just these two disciples who were a bit dopey about this. Uh, No Israelite expected the Messiah to be killed. That just didn't fit their idea of what a Messiah would do. One greater than David. So Jesus was opening passages like Isaiah 53 to them. And saying these are talking about Jesus. About the Messiah. And you need to understand that what has happened is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And it's totally in accordance and in fulfillment of scripture. So you need to completely rethink your understanding of redemption and recognize that the cross was essential to God's plan. Jesus did not fail at all. And what proves that, of course, is the resurrection. I mean, if there was no resurrection, yes, you would be very hard to see how there could have been any redemption. But because of the resurrection, and remember when Jesus prophesied his passion, and he did it three times, and it's recorded in all the synoptic gospels, he says the Christ or the Son of Man will suffer, he will get given into the hands of evil men, and he will die. And twice he said, and he will rise on the third day. This was necessary to redeem us. It was necessary to redeem us from sin. It's not a failure. And it seems that this must have made some sense to the disciples. Because whilst we don't hear that the scales fell from their eyes, 
They want Jesus to hang around a bit longer. They press him to stay the evening with them and share fellowship. I think that's uh, quite characteristic of people who have had some experience of God, who uh, perhaps are God-seekers. They know enough to know that they want God to hang around. Uh, Maybe a lot of, we might say, nominal Christians are like this. That They know that life would be too hard without God. They don't necessarily want to commit their lives to God, but they want God to be there for them. And hopefully they want to grow in their understanding. Certainly these two, they know that they need to hear more from this fellow traveller, so they, break, they invite him in. And then Jesus does uh, what he did when he fed the 5,000, what he did at the Passover. He took bread, uh, he, get, he blessed God for it, and he broke it and gave it to them. And at that point, we are told, their eyes were opened and they recognised him. Now, I said it might be significant if they were husband and wife. And the reason I say that is because do you remember the last time in Scripture when a husband and wife ate something and their eyes were opened? I'm asking you, do you remember the first time that that happened? Way back in Genesis chapter 3. They took fruit from the tree of knowledge. They ate it, gave it to one another. They ate it. And we're told the same words. Their eyes were opened and they recognised they were naked. The only thing that changes is that instead of recognising they were naked, these two recognised Jesus. And that's quite a significant change, isn't it? When you think about it, the whole need from redemption came from that first uh, meal, that first opening of the eyes that curse is finally broken on this occasion when they recognise Jesus as their saviour and as their redeemer. It's rather like what God says uh, to the church in Laodicea, isn't it, in Revelation chapter 3. Lo, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open to me, I will come in and I will eat with you. And then there will be transformation uh, in your life. We need to invite people in to break bread with them that they might not only know but experience the risen Christ. You see, these guys have had the sermon. They now needed the sacrament, as as we call it. They needed uh, to partake in this precious meal. And then things really came home to them. Well, this is exciting stuff and even though it's 10 k's back to Jerusalem and even, t- even though the sun has gone down, they decide they need to go back and tell the others about this. So they rush back, uh, crash through into the room and you'd think they'd get their announcement out first, wouldn't you? But no, they have to stop and listen because something even better has happened. Simon Peter has seen the risen Lord. In fact, they say, truly, he is risen because Simon has seen him. Now, they never said that about the women's testimony, did they? Let's be honest. Why was that? Well, because Peter was uh, top gun, even though he denied Christ. The fact that Peter had seen him was seen as something truly reliable. 
So they now knew that Jesus really had risen. And of course, Cleopas and his uh, companion, whether it was Mary or someone else, say, Ah, yes, and we have seen him too. Not quite so significant, but nonetheless important. Another two witnesses. And then suddenly Jesus himself appears and creates havoc again. They've just said that truly Jesus uh, is risen, and then suddenly they're thrown back into turmoil again when he appears. Why is this? It seems that the problem of Jesus' bodily resurrection was a problem not just on this uh, first day, but it was a problem for the early church. You only have to read Paul's epistle to the Corinthians when you get to chapter 15. It's clearly a matter of some concern and debate, and maybe is even preventing people believe. Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And do you know how he responds? Exactly the same words that Jesus used on the road to Emmaus. You foolish people. He's saying it's a stupid thing to try and reason scientifically. What do we know about the resurrection? We know it's a real body. It's corporeal. Is that the word? I think it's corporeal. It's got flesh and blood. You can see the nails, the marks of the nails. So in other words, there's continuity. And yet it is different. Because it can walk through locked doors. It can seemingly disappear without people seeing it go. Or that may have just been that they weren't paying attention at the right moment. In other words, it is not a ghost. It's a real body. But it's a resurrection body. And it's going to be different to an, uh, an unresurrected body, a mortal body. Because it's taken on immortality. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul's saying is this should not be a block to belief. Is it a block to people's belief today? I'm not actually sure. I haven't had any arguments with anybody about the nature of the resurrection body. But it shouldn't be and we shouldn't get hung up on it either. And then Jesus closes by again going back to the scriptures. Again reinforcing what the angels had said to the women. You must realise that everything has happened exactly as God and as Jesus said it would. It has gone to plan and you should believe because of that. If you go back through Isaiah 53, it's quite amazing the fulfilment verse by verse of everything there in Jesus. And then you start dipping into the Psalms, into Psalm 22 uh, and so on, and you see all these things that Jesus uh, fulfills in his own person. These were written hundreds of years earlier. They couldn't have been tailored to suit. And you should be convinced that the scriptures do indeed point to him and can be trusted. Well, the chapter contains an emphasis on the word. It contains an emphasis on the sacraments. And then it closes with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's when the Spirit is at work that things like eyes being opened happen. It's often called a divine passive. Their eyes were opened. Well, the Holy Spirit came and they saw what they hadn't seen before. They're told not to go and witness until they are filled with the Spirit. They have to firstly recognize Jesus and then they have to wait for the Spirit. And it's no different 
from us for us today. So as we move into talking about this new church, remember that we need the word. A church that doesn't centre itself on the word is not going to be proclaiming the true Jesus. We need the sacraments. Now, I'm not saying we have to be Anglo-Catholic at all, but let's not downplay the importance of meeting Jesus in the Lord's Supper, of doing that regularly. Let's not uh, forget that baptism is absolutely essential as the mark of our rebirth, our adoption as God's children. And let's not forget the power of the Spirit to bring life, to bring authority to God's Word as it's preached and proclaimed. Right, the business end, I suppose, of this is to try and get that to work. What am I doing wrong? I did uh, push that. I've only got three slides for you. Uh, I'm I'm not going to go to all the background because you probably already know that. At any rate, you're no longer in... uh, the ACANZP, which is the Anakin Church in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Polynesia. We've all uh, left that for, very, for, for, for what I believe are, are good reasons. Uh, what a group of us have done, there's now 12 parishes as we have formed or are forming ourselves into uh, a new Anglican Church in New Zealand. There's no other way to put it. Uh, we're simply saying that uh, we are still Anglican. Uh, we haven't changed. They decided not to leave us, so we had to leave them, but it doesn't alter who we are. So we are going to be a diocese, what's called an extra-provincial diocese, in other words, a diocese outside of the New Zealand province. The good thing is that most of Anglicans in the world will now recognise us as authentically Anglican. And actually some of them are saying, they're saying we can't recognise ACANZP anymore as authentically Anglican because it's changed its doctrine. No longer upholding the doctrines of Christ as the church has received them. So we're doing this properly. We've formed a, we've written a constitution, which has been approved but not yet adopted. Uh, we are in the process of electing a bishop. We will have our first synod in Christchurch on the 17th and 18th of uh, May. So that's only what three weeks ago. And at that point, the constitution will be adopted at a proper synod. Um, which will be chaired by the Bishop of Tasmania. And then uh, we also elect a bishop. We've gone through a nomination process and that uh, the nominees will be put forward. We'll vote on them, we'll elect a bishop. And then there will be an ordination of that bishop in probably uh, August, September. And we know that bishops from overseas, uh, from within the GAFCON movement, will come and lay hands on that person and then will be a recognised church within 70% of the Anglican communion. Uh, <coughs> that, that side of things isn't that important to us. What's important are the things that we've talked about, that we are a fellowship of churches, that uh, we hold to the word of God written and are passed down, and uh, we will continue to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper and to be led we believe, by God's Spirit. So you can see there's a, a heavy bias to the South Island. The reason I put that down to is theological training. And that's something that's going to be a big deal in this new church. We're going to make sure that people get a decent theological education without casting any aspersions on St. John's College. I wouldn't do that, you know. 
Um, that's been a problem with our church. We have had not had good theological training. Uh, most of the vicars of these parishes do not train in New Zealand, and I think that's why their parishes are the ones that have been let out. <coughs> big job to evangelise the North Island, isn't there? It's where most of the people are, but not many of the parishes. Not that there aren't lots of other good churches doing things. Next slide, uh, right? Uh, and, and the next one. Jay Ben, who's the chairman of the Fellowship of Confessing Anakins, which is the, <coughs> sorry, the body that's uh, largely been behind the setting up of this new church, put up all seven, um, has uh, presented at one of the hui we had last year that these are the seven pillars of the new Anakin. Actually, that wasn't his language, that's, that's uh, mine, but I don't think he might if I use that language. Uh, he put forward those seven things as central to our identity, that we see the Bible as authoritative, uh, in other words we submit ourselves uh, to the authority of Scripture, we don't put ourselves above Scripture, we interpret in whatever way we like, uh, Christ and the cross are uh, central, uh, particularly the fact that Christ died for our sin and atoned for it on the cross. That is a message sadly that's lost in many churches today, not just AC, ANZ, maybe we have moved away from preaching uh, sin and repentance because society doesn't like to be told that. People don't like to be told that. But unless the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, there won't be any true repentance. And therefore there's no true conversion. <coughs> Thanks very much. I'm tired of that. I hope it's only water. Evangelism is essential. Uh, again, uh, any church that stops having any urgency to tell the good news is going to be in the end shrivel up and die. And again, we've seen that in the mainline churches, particularly all over the place, aren't they? Many of them are what I call in palliative care mode. Uh, they, they really can, well, they are. As, as churches, they die. And they're looking after their dying process, but they've got no vision to turn it around and breathe new life. They don't seem to have any, any concern that uh, people aren't coming to faith. We were at Baptist Easter Camp last weekend, and some of you probably were too. I mean, absolutely mind blowing. 5,000 young people there. Uh, the Baptists have had a youth ministry for years where they really do train up uh, youth leaders in that, and they've got an urgency for evangelism. And you can see the fruit. Deliberate discipleship, intentionally teaching people how to read the scriptures, nurturing them uh, in their walk with Christ, and out of them raising up uh, leadership for the future. Persistent prayer, uh, everything should be grounded uh, in prayer, and uh, so that's uh, been a focus already. We have a regular uh, prayer update every two weeks. We email around our group. Uh, and we pray for one another. Robust relationships. I mean, this is the importance of being part of a denomination. I mean, I'm not into denominations for the sake of it, but a denomination in which you have robust relationships means there's accountability uh, to one another. Uh, we pray for one another, but we're also accountable to one another. It means it's less likely that we're going to go off theme. Uh, one of the things that we've all shared, all 12 uh, leaders of the churches that are listed there is that when we used to go to DOS and events we actually used to go reluctantly because we didn't really enjoy the fellowship there and I suspect no one else did either 
the, the, the theological diversity was just too great. We, we, we were poles apart often. And it meant you could never worship God freely, for example. There wasn't that real sense of collegiality and caring for one another. Uh, so that's really important, those robust relationships. But also to be able to challenge one another uh, and be accountable to one another. And then lastly, authentically, Anglican. Uh, that's, come, that's number seven, and very much in seventh place. Uh, it's saying we don't apologise for the church, which we are part of, it's our family. Uh, but if we're going to be Anglican, let's be authentic about that. We're people of the book, people of the word. And uh, so much that's gone on in Anglican church over the centuries has, has been uh, quite un-Anglican, actually. Uh, so we're sort of wanting to reclaim uh, what we call an authentic Anglicanism. And is that it? No, I've got a bit of the Constitution here. The Constitution is, uh, is about eight or ten pages, so I didn't want to bore you with that. You have to have a Constitution. Now, I've never been versed in these things, but having been involved with some guys, you actually have to have these things. Uh, so this is, I think, the section headed up our purpose. It describes the fundamentals of our church, and you can see some of the things I've already said. Christ-centred. Uh, Anglican, <clears throat> part of a wider universal church. Uh, denominationalism to me should never be used to say we're better than anybody else, but then we shouldn't apologise for who we are. It's our family. Our overarching task is to glorify God. That's what we're all here for. And we have to engage in God's mission in all its aspects led by the Holy Spirit. And then there's, uh, I mentioned there, the Treaty of Waitangi, where we're of the context uh, that we're in and the importance of that for our identity as a church in New Zealand. And then we get to the specific uh, parts of the mission that we think are of primary importance. Now you may have heard of the Five Marks of Mission, that's the one that the Anglican Church in Archie New Zealand upon leisure uh, upholds as its mission, which is uh, preaching the gospel, discipleship, uh, acts of loving service, care of creation, and changing unjust structures. Not a bad mission statement, but the trouble is that what the church has done is tended to major on the last three and ignore the first two. It's ignored proclamation and discipleship and focused on creation and social justice um, and, and service. Done those things well, but lost the other two. We want to flip things a bit. We, we want to really emphasise uh, the proclamation and the discipleship and evangelism, which is the first four uh, of course we're here to promote true worship and we've put one in there that isn't normally mentioned, we are here to support the suffering church throughout the world and we think that's really important to have in there because it's so easy in the West to forget that our brothers and sisters around the world really need our fellowship uh, and our support and then 3.7 includes the care of creation unjust structures and that stuff, so we're not saying those things uh, aren't part of our mission, but we're, we're trying to say if you disciple people and proclaim the gospel, then as they are transformed by Christ, then they should be doing these things. So it's not so much the, the church at the centre doing it, but it's the membership doing it. And we see that in evangelical churches have always uh, had lots of people involved in parachurch uh, organisations involved uh, in the community. There's no issue about that. Uh, and we want to support it. But it's not the primary job of the church when it meets on Sunday, for example. And then uh, the relationship we have with other faithful Anglican churches. And I would have liked to have seen it all other faithful churches around the world. Um, yeah. 
So that gives you a bit of a, an idea about what this uh, new church is about. Do you want to, what do you want to do, Graham and Sue? Do you want to leave it there or do you want to have time for questions? Or yeah, yeah. <coughs> yeah, just if you just hang around here. Has anyone got any questions <coughs> for Michael at, at this stage? Actually, I've got one. Um, the, so it's called the New Anglican Church? or No. No, okay. It's <coughs> this is a bit of a sticky one. We actually did choose a name at our, hui last, our last hui in March. <coughs> But a lot of us aren't very keen on it, so I'm not using it because I, I don't think it's a good name. Uh, and we're managing to get part of it changed, we believe, for the Synod. We will change it a little bit. But I'm not, unfortunately, liberty to tell you. I can tell you what it, what it was passed at the last hui, which is the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans Aotearoa New Zealand. Now, if you think that's a great name, put your hand up. Uh, okay, well, that's good to hear. We're going to change some of it at, at the Synod. I think it's fairly safe to say it will be improved, but... But not completely. No, I just uh, <coughs> figured out an acronym on fishing, camping, and adventures that helped me. Oh. Remember what it was. It's got a bit um, more appeal. This <laughs> um, one other question: What does the new Anglican Church, for want of a better word, have for a prayer book? Yep. Uh, well, we've uh, we've got a clause in our constitution uh, about that. At the moment, we're playing very safe, and we're saying the Book of Common Prayer is the sort of basis. Although I don't think any of us actually use it uh, on a Sunday. I'm talking about the 1562. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I know there's been debate about whether it should actually be the 1562 version. Uh, the more reformed ones want to. Go back to, to, to that. But anyway, the, the fact is that uh, we will, we're actually probably going to write our own prayer book. Yeah, which will no doubt plagiarise uh, from lots of others. <laughs> okay, <coughs> any, any questions from anyone else? Is there a, um, a Polynesian, a Māori, and a Pacifica group? Like there's three parts to the Yankee Church? We've uh, deliberately gone away from that model. Uh, we understand why the church went that way. Uh, personally, we don't think it, it's a good gospel model, actually. Uh, we think the principles of partnership are good, and that's why we've got that wording uh, in the Constitution, that we want to respect the principles of partnership uh, that are reflected in the Treaty of Waitangi. But again, remembering that's a secular document, not a, not a specifically Christian one. So, no, we haven't got a three-tikanga church, and at the moment we haven't got anyone from Tikanga Polynesia uh, on board, but we think it's quite likely that we will. We've got good friends in there, uh, including uh, bishops, but at this stage, yeah. But if they came to us, then certainly we would extend it. Um, yeah, we, we're working within the, the bounds of what the existing ACANZP is, which of course includes Polynesia, but, but we're not trying to nick people out of ACANZP or anything like that. If people come, then we will obviously accommodate them. Oh, sorry. sorry, the idea is that if there's a context where, I mean, some, say a Maori majority congregation, well, we would want them to be a, a Maori church. I mean, yeah, totally supportive of that. Reflect whatever context. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Very important. Um, just invite the music team up.